don't know if y'all have ever had this happen to you, but anytime you stub your toe or maybe you bite your tongue, I get like this, this just flash of rage and I'm like looking around for someone to be mad at. When you bite your tongue or you bite your lip or something, there's no one to blame but you, right? I mean, like who, what else, who else's fault could that be? You know, sometimes we do things and it's just 100% our fault. This happened to me somewhat recently at Quick Trip here in town. I filled up with gas. I customarily, as I do, got my giant XXL jug of iced tea from inside, returned to my car. I'm pulling away, and it's then I hear an unmistakable sound. And that sound was the gas hose snapping off of the center because I had forgot to take the pump out of my car. I had two immediate thoughts. One was now I can't laugh at other people driving around with the handle hanging out because I am one of those people. And the second was dread because I knew I'd have to go inside and tell somebody about it. (laughs) When we've made a mistake, how do we recover? What do we do with our guilt? What I hope we'll discover as we study God's word together today is that God's grace is greater than our guilt. Now, in the case of me at Quick Trip, I felt guilt about breaking the gas pump. Now, I've learned that apparently this is not uncommon, and there's a whole safety mechanism to make sure gas isn't flying everywhere, and we've got an automatic shutdown thing, and they clip apart, and I learned a lot that day, (laughs) but uh, I felt guilty about breaking the gas pump. So that was one emotion. I then experienced the second emotion that's related but distinct. And that emotion, it was shame. So I felt guilt about breaking the pump. I felt shame because I was worried about what everybody else in the parking lot thought of me. Lord knows I always see somebody at church when I go to Quick Trip or from church. And, And the thing I was most afraid of or most shamed of is I knew I'd have to go tell the person at the register. Right? And I, don't, I can't remember if I had my sunglasses on or if I had a hoodie, I would have put it up. And I was just like, hey, uh, I, uh, <clears throat> I broke the pump. <laughs> you know, like, I tried to just get out of there, man. I couldn't even make eye contact. It was terrible. Guilt is how we've behaved. That's what we've done. Shame is about how we're perceived. So guilt is typically our actions, actions typically toward others, Shame is about perception by others, or even how we perceive ourselves. So I think guilt and shame are related, but they're distinct. Shame is about what we've done, how we behaved. Guilt, excuse me, I just made, guilt is about how we behaved. Shame is about how we're perceived, what we've done, or others' perception of us. When was the time that you experienced guilt? This is rhetorical now. Maybe a related emotion or maybe another time. When was the time that you were ashamed? Now, some people feel neither guilt nor shame. Maybe they don't know something is wrong and so they don't feel guilty about what they've done. Or uh, maybe they don't care that it's wrong and they have no shame. Now, that's another sermon for another time. But when we do experience guilt and shame, what do we do with it? 
How do we think God views us in those moments? Can we believe that that God is a forgiving God? And even if we assent to that thought in our minds, or if we believe that theologically, have we forgiven ourselves? Now, we went from my little cute, embarrassing story at Quick Trip into much deeper waters pretty quickly, didn't we? In this Christmas series called Gift Exchange, we're looking at the gifts we can receive from God. As we said in the season of Advent, that's the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And each week we focus on a different gift, a different aspect of God. God's hope, God's love, God's joy, and God's peace. So this week we're looking at how we can exchange our guilt and receive God's love. The book of John opens with some of the most famous words ever uttered in human history. It's describing not only the nature of Jesus, uh, depicting his birth, but also the reason for his mission, for his appearance, for his incarnation. We read in John 1, starting in verse 9, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Now the world still doesn't universally recognize Jesus as the light of the world. And that was true among Jesus' contemporaries. Verse 11 tells us, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Imagine, I just think it's beyond our ability to to grasp this fully, Imagine being so good and still being rejected. Imagine being perfect, but that's still not being enough, or that being reason for others to reject you. The crucifixion was a tragedy for many reasons, one of which was that an innocent man was executed. But the tragedy of Jesus' life didn't just come to fruition at the crucifixion. It started long before when people either willfully or ignorantly did not recognize Jesus' origin or the light of his wisdom or his authority. John tells us, yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus was born supernaturally. That's what we talked about last week. Add that to the list of wild things that are at the foundation of Christian belief. We read, what is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. And when when we receive Jesus, we too can experience a supernatural birth. And as we'll see, this isn't by our own efforts, but based on the gift that Jesus wants us to receive. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We read the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Earlier in chapter 1, the author of John, John, describes Jesus as the word that existed before creation. Now that's, there's a whole other, again, sermon topic there that we could barely scratch the surface on. But this concept of the Greek which we translate into the word, we can think of word as message. So we can think of the word becoming flesh as God's message becoming a messenger. 
This is called the incarnation, that the eternal son of God became a mortal person. I think there's a human tendency to, once we get used to something, to kind of take it for granted. I think we do this all the time. Uh, My wife sang in the last service, and I've been married to Sarah for 15 years. I expect her, she's got an amazing voice, but at this point, I'm not really shocked. You know what I mean? And so what we got to worry about is not appreciating something once we've gotten used to it. And author J.B. Phillips writes that there's a danger to doing that in this season. That the towering miracle of God's visit to this planet on which we live will be brushed aside or rendered impotent by overfamiliarity. Woo! That's part of the reason we take a month to get ready for Christmas. You know, I don't know what your, if your family has a tradition of decorating, but it's just kind of, well, let's get stuff out the basement day after Thanksgiving. Yeah, let's get it out. I mean, there's a casualness that we can fall into and lose sight of the miracle of the word becoming flesh. Whereas my boy, Eugene Peterson, my favorite author, he translates it, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And then those who were referenced earlier, the author speaks of, those that did receive him, they saw the glory of Jesus firsthand, the glory of the one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. These twin qualities of grace and truth are crucial in understanding the mission of Jesus and the motivation behind the incarnation. Now, the classic definition of grace is unmerited favor. Those aren't, that's probably not a phrase I would use in everyday conversation. And so previously, uh, here we've defined grace, another way to think of it, as getting what you haven't earned. Grace is getting what you haven't earned. Jesus came to give people grace. Reconciliation with God, not through our own efforts, but as a gift. Freely received, not something we earn. Now at the same time, Scripture tells us Jesus came full of truth. Let's define truth as reality what really is. The truth is dealing with reality. The light of Jesus shined in the darkness, but we may not want everything to have light shined on it. We may not want everything in our lives brought into the light. So I think another way to think of the truth, if grace is good news, the truth can be hard news. Jesus came full of both grace and truth. Both are vital. And we can see all sorts of scriptures through the lens of this combination of grace and truth. Later in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, we read this. This is from 1 Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So I think there's both hard news and good news embedded in this scripture. The hard news is that we're sinners in need of a savior. In the original language, sinner, the word sinner, we get from the Greek heart, harmat, oh my gosh, I put this phonetically so I can say it right. <laughs> hamartalos, there it is, excuse me. We get it from the Greek word hamartalos. And that comes from a Greek word which is harmatia. That is a term from archery and it means to miss the mark. Now, I don't understand why in English it's sin or sinner and there's twice the syllables in Greek, hamartalos. So 
I don't know how that works. I just know that's the root, that's the etymology of where we get the term sinner. And it means missing the mark. So the imagery is that when we sin, we're like an arrow that's off target, off target from God's best desires for us and for our neighbors. So sometimes we sin in terms of omission. There's some things we should do that we don't do. Those are sins of omission. Other times they're sins of commission, things we do that we shouldn't. And so the hard news, the truth, is that we are all sinners. But the good news is Jesus came to save sinners. I think one of the most operative words in John 1 is the word and. Jesus came full of grace and truth. And if we emphasize one over the other, we can miss out on the whole picture. We can miss the point of Jesus' incarnation and the reason for it. One of the things I like to say, or I think about all the time, is that most theology is a matter of emphasis. Now, if you're newer to faith, you may not have this this, um, broader experience to draw from, but if if you would think back to how you were raised or if you went to this or that church for a long time or a short time, you could probably in your mind think, well, this place probably emphasized grace or this place emphasized truth. Now, we need both. I want to demonstrate that. I think most Methodists emphasize grace. Most Methodist churches I've been a part of, I certainly start, try anyway, to start with grace. Now, if I was on my high horse, I would say, well, that was the first one listed in John 1. But it's my philosophy that y'all don't need to be told how rotten we all are every week. I just, I think it's called good news for a reason. So we as Methodists and and me as a pastor tend to emphasize grace. But if we're all grace and no truth, we, we can be in danger of being complacent or comfortable. And, and I don't think, um, I would say the pulpit, I don't actually have, I think we have a pulpit somewhere. But the metaphorical pulpit, the ser- sermons are not a platform for me to dog on individuals in public life. So I'm, I'm going to not make this real specific. But you can fill in the blanks with whoever you want. Think about athletes or musicians or billionaires or politicians that just go off the rails. And whenever that happens, I think to myself, man, they got nobody in their life telling them no. No one in their life telling them no. That's why they're doing all this crazy stuff. No one had the good sense. Oh, I'll add pastors to that list. How about that? How about that? I usually, I can't dog on my own kind. But like if the pastor's on their third purchase of a private jet, no one's been like, maybe we should stop at two. They got nobody in their life telling them no. And I think we see that reflected, or it's possible to have that mentality with the all grace and no truth approach to what Christ offers us. Because then the relationship with Christ isn't isn't a true relationship, it's just transactional. And there's this mentality out there that's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. So if Jesus is full of grace, I can just kind of do whatever I want still, knowing God will forgive me. This is addressed in the New Testament. This was a debate they had early on in the early days after Jesus' ministry. We read this in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. In 2022, that's the equivalent. It's like, no way. 
We are those that have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So for all grace and no truth, we'll miss part of the point, which is that we are people in need of redemption. Now, on the other hand, if we're all truth and no grace, then we encounter judgment. If all grace and no truth is complacent, all truth and no grace is judgment. Judgment. You know, if you're a sinner beyond redemption and there's no hope, like, what's the point? That was Judas' mistake, the one who betrayed Jesus. He sold himself out. He sold his Savior out for 30 pieces of silver, the Bible tells us. And then he experienced incredible guilt and shame. And he tried to give the money back, saying, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. And the people that, that paid him, that helped put Jesus in prison and execute him, they said, well, what's that to us? That's your responsibility. And then the Bible tells us that Jesus went and took his own life. And I don't mean to treat this uh, flippantly at all. I would interpret that event as all Judas was perceiving was truth. He thought he was beyond grace. After Jesus' crucifixion, imagine if if Judas would have waited three days. When we experience guilt and shame, we need to remember that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Now, I would argue that guilt can be a good thing because guilt guides us toward the truth. You know, it's interesting trying to preach about guilt and shame because there's a certain threshold that I'm looking to stay in, which is things that I'm guilty or ashamed of that I don't mind sharing with you publicly. Right? So I keep coming back to this quick trip example because it's safe, both for my own comfort uh, and and. and my respectability. But, but when I broke that quick trip gas pump, guilt was a good, I needed to go in and tell somebody about it because someone behind me needed to pump gas too. It's a good thing to deal in reality. But when we experience shame, it goes to a different place because shame repels us from grace. We think we're not worthy or or we perceive ourselves as not being worth saving, whether through our own thoughts or if everyone else thinks that about me, well, it must be true. So shame prevents us from receiving grace because we think we're not worthy or we're not included. So what I'd like to do is read to you the second part to a verse we read a little bit of earlier. This is 1 Timothy. We read part of verse 15. Now we're going to go from chapter 1 into verse 16. So here's what we read earlier. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So we read that first part earlier, and then Paul adds, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. The author of this passage, some of us know, some of us may not, was Paul, who was originally a Jewish religious official. And he was responsible for systematically hunting down Christians, putting them in prison, and scripture even records him assisting in their stoning. He held everybody's coat while they put a Christian to death. Now, after Jesus' death and resurrection, 
Paul had an encounter with Jesus, and he was chosen to take the good news around the world precisely because he was such an unlikely candidate. That's what he's saying in the scripture we read. I was chosen as an example so that people might understand that the worst sinner is not beyond redemption. So that's the whole point. That's why it's called the good news. That anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. You can read about this in the New Testament. That, that after Paul's conversion, after he starts to follow Jesus, he comes around with some of the remnant of the disciples and this growing movement of the church, and they're like, behind door number three, it's Paul. And they're like, what? That guy? We, we used to run from this guy. Now we're supposed to partner up with him? Again, if we've been kind of used to this story, yeah, Paul had scales fall from his eyes and used to be named Saul, I don't know. We can just kind of get used to it. And so there's danger in, in not respecting the incredible sense of irony that God chose the worst of sinners to lead the charge. Man, that's why it's called the greatest story ever told. So no one who believes in him will ever be put to shame. Shame keeps us from the grace that Jesus offers. Guilt can be helpful in leading us toward the truth. But I think we can get hung up on guilt if we don't deal with it fully. Right, I think there's another, there's another feeling sort of in between guilt and shame. Like after we feel guilty about something, we, we can also feel remorse. Like we wish we hadn't done that. Or maybe we wish we would have done something that, that, that we left undone. And so I would say guilt is good. Guilt can be good. Remorse is better, but repentance is best. So the way to deal with our guilt is, is through repentance. Three decades after his birth, full of grace and truth, Jesus began his public ministry with these words. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That was the first thing Jesus announced. The Greek word for repent is metanoeo. And it means to take uh, to have a change of mind or a change of heart. This concept uh, of repentance is also present in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. And in the ancient Hebrew language, the, the, the meaning behind that word was to turn around, to make an about face, to take another path with the desire to not keep returning down the same sinful road. So that's the key in moving beyond guilt is to repent to have a change of heart and a change of mind and to place yourself on a new road. God stands ready to forgive us. We read, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So if God is ready to forgive us, why would we not forgive ourselves? Last month we did a series on forgiveness and we defined forgiveness as releasing your right to retribution. When we forgive someone, we no longer desire for them to be punished or suffer as they have made us suffer. We let go of that right. And so if God has offered us forgiveness through Jesus, why would we continue to punish ourselves? Give God your guilt and receive God's love. 
He already has forgiven us by offering us Jesus, the light of the world, who came to us full of grace and truth to save sinners. And the good news is that none of us are beyond his reach. Paul, that unlikely candidate to be probably, arguably the most influential Christian of all time, wrote this. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. I'm going to add a little bit here. Neither errors nor mistakes, neither addictions nor failures, nor any guilt or shame will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's from Romans 8.38 with the little musto edition there. Give you that as a stocking stuffer. <laughs> Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's the good news, friends, is that God's grace is greater than our guilt. And at Christmas time was when that message began. So if you've been feeling remorseful but haven't repented, if you've been feeling shame and you feel like you're excluded from God's love, Friends, my invitation to you is to give all that up. To give God your guilt, give God your shame, and in its place, receive God's love. When you came in, I hope you got a card that simply says, God, I give you. And every week, we're giving folks an opportunity just as, as, as a way to actualize this. To reflect and make their own kind of decision about what they want to give God symbolically. We have some available up here by this table in this big present. If, you, if we missed you, there's a pen up there too. But as, as we sing our final hymn, I'd invite you to consider what is it that you need to give God? Is there some guilt or shame that's blocking your receptivity of God's love, especially in this season? I do want you to know that all this is anonymous. Nobody's keeping track of this. I don't want you to worry about that. These, all these cards over these next couple weeks are gonna be used as kindling in a little bonfire in between our 7 p.m. and 11 p.m. Christmas Eve services. One of my favorite seminary professors said, faith needs something to do. And so as you consider your own standing with God, having already forgiven you, have you received it? Are you holding on to something? And so as the last song plays and we stand here in a moment, I'd invite you just whenever you want to, to come down these aisles. You can use the center ones and return by the side aisles. And you can just fill this out and put that in that present. And symbolically give God your guilt. And what an exchange that we in its place can receive God's love. Friends, every step down that aisle can be a step of repentance toward a new road. Thanks be to God that God's grace is greater than our guilt. And everybody said, amen. amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this community that we share in your name. Thank you for a place where we can look around and be reminded that we're not the only ones who believe this crazy Jesus stuff. God, it's a daily, if not hourly, if not minute-by-minute minute battle uh, to free ourselves from the sin that so easily ensnares us.
God, we give those over to you. It's only by dying to ourselves and being born again supernaturally through the power of your Holy Spirit that we can be put on a new road, that we can do an about face. And so God, wherever we're at in our spiritual journey, help us be confident that you have given us the ability to be called your children. That no one is beyond the reach of your gracious love and nothing can separate us from what you offer us and what you already have through the love of sending your son, Jesus Christ, into the world. God, help us be humble enough to know that we are sinners in need of saving and help us to be grateful of the gift that you offer us, not through our own efforts, but through what you've already done. God, in this moment, would you provide what all of us need individually that we could know that nothing can separate us from your great love, which is greater than our guilt. Amen.